Well, good morning. Uh, Like most Mother's Day Sundays, I'm going to be preaching on money. (laughs) Just kidding. That's probably not what happens most Mother's Days, but we just are going to be continuing through the text. That's what we do. We are committed to expository preaching. So if you would open up in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5, uh, we're going to continue on in the next section. Um, We just covered widows, and now we're hitting a section where Paul is writing to Timothy about elders. But we'll find in the two verses that we're going to look at in verses 17 and 18 that money is really a major theme and how the church ought to talk about, think about their use of money. Uh, In studying for this, I came across a passage in Luke chapter 3. You don't have to turn there. Um, But I just want to draw your attention to an interesting moment in the ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist appears on the scene and he is preaching the gospel. He's preaching forgiveness of sins. He's preaching the Messiah is coming. He's preaching that people need to repent. And in that chapter, he calls people who thought themselves to be right with God to repentance. And not only to repentance, he even gets specific. He calls the people to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, don't just say you've repented. Don't just say you've believed. There are fruits that show from a life of repentance. A life of turning from sin toward God involves change, involves the bearing of fruit. And in this particular scene, there are different people that respond to his message. The first group is called the crowds. They come up to him and they said, all right, well, what should we do? We should repent. We get that. We should bear fruit. We get that. But what does that look like? Give me some you know, boots on the ground, practical application. What does it look like for me to repent? John the Baptist answers, whoever has two tunics has to share with the one who has none. And whoever has food, likewise, go do the same. Okay. One of the ways repentance will show itself is if you've got extra stuff, you're giving it to the people who are in need. The tax collectors come. And they're saying the same thing. What should we do? In other words, there's maybe a little different application for them, and so they want to know, well, what do we do as tax collectors? And Jesus says to them in verse 13, collect no more than you're authorized to do. As you probably are familiar with, tax collectors were known for basically stealing money from people because they had the government behind them, and they can come in and ask for more than was actually required, and they were stealing from people who couldn't help themselves. What should we do, they ask. Jesus says, don't collect any more than what you're supposed to. And there's a third group. Soldiers come up to Jesus. They've heard the same sermon. Sorry, not to Jesus, to John. They they ask the same question. And what should we do? And what's John's answer to the soldiers? He says, don't extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. And be content with your wages. You see what's happening? Three different groups. Three different needs of repentance. One common thread. Did you see it? Every time John was asked, what does repentance look like for me? He replied with something about their possessions, something about their money, something about what they had. John is preaching forgiveness of sins, 
And let's make it very clear that forgiveness of sins is not on the basis of you doing anything with your money. You are not more forgiven if you give more or are more generous. You don't earn more forgiveness by giving your money away to people who need it. That is not what John preached. He preached forgiveness of sins. That was stated earlier in the chapter. But when he is asked how specifically repentance displays itself in the fruit of someone who is believing, three times, three for three, he points out something to do with money or possessions. Now, uh, if you thought that was just John, you would actually read through the rest of the Gospels, and what would you know about Jesus? Doesn't he sound the same? In fact, Jesus will speak more about money and possessions than he will speak about heaven and hell combined. He's always bringing things back to the heart, and one of the best ways to get straight to the heart of a person is to ask them about their possessions, about their money, about what they own. Money reveals the heart. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your wallet reveals your worship. Your budget is going to reveal what you truly value. Your giving is going to tell me what your God is. This is always what Jesus is coming back to. In fact, you remember the story of the rich young ruler, right? This man comes to Jesus. He he wants eternal life. In fact, that's what he starts the conversation by asking. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, what would you have said to that question? You probably would have recited the gospel. You probably would have made clear the way of salvation, and that would not have been wrong. Jesus does something different. He he gets right to the heart of this man, and eventually he calls him to all-out repentance. And what does that look like? He says, sell all your possessions, give them to the poor, and follow me. What does the man do? He walks away. He walks away, sad. He doesn't get eternal life. He doesn't get to follow Jesus. He actually didn't want Jesus as his God. He actually didn't want Jesus as his Lord. He wanted Jesus as his guru. (laughs) He wanted Jesus as his life coach, someone he could have call into the equation, get some input on his life every once in a while, but he didn't want to give up everything and follow him. And Jesus was the master at poking right at the idol that needed to be dismantled in order for there to be true discipleship in following him. He got right to the heart. How did he do it? He called out his use of possessions and his love of money. Remember Zacchaeus? He was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He climbed up that tree, right? And Jesus was coming down to, and the crowds were all there and he climbed up in the tree to see him. And Zacchaeus wanted to, to see who was this Lord and is after getting invited to be with Jesus. Zacchaeus repents. This tax collector who had been guilty of taking money uh, from people, just like all the tax collectors were doing in those days, he was just as bad as the rest of them. And he repents. What is the fruit of his repentance? Do you remember? What did Zacchaeus do? Luke 19, verse 8 says, And Zacchaeus stood and, lay, and said to the Lord, Behold, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Anybody I've taken anything from, I'm not only returning the money, I'm going to give back four times what I took from them, and then the rest of the stuff I have left over, I'm giving half of that to the poor. Uh, that's Repentance. It wasn't just a change of his mind about who Jesus was. It was a change of his values. 
It was a change of his treasure. It was a change of where he's setting his hope. Money matters. And the way you are spending your money is either growing evidence that you believe Jesus was right and true when He made promises about eternal life. The way you spend your money is either growing evidence that you believe in the promises of God that those who renounce everything to follow Jesus will be given an inheritance that is imperishable, that lasts forever throughout all eternity. And that is secure. If you actually believe that to be true, well, you happen to be generous. You start seeing the world like it's monopoly money and all its possessions like monopoly money. And it it works a little bit while we're here, but we know that as soon as this world is over, as soon as this world passes us by and we're into the next life, that the money that we've made here doesn't work. Try playing a game of Monopoly and then go taking that money to the bank. All that money you won is getting you nowhere. You can't go to the grocery store with it. You can't pay off your debts with it. And the same is true with all the things that we're gathering in this life. The currency of this world will not transfer into eternity. And Christians are people who believe that what values most is what will last out into eternity. And the money and stuff that we have here is only temporary. And so we're not giving our lives to attaining it, accumulating it, and using it for ourselves. Friends, maybe the, the overarching big picture of this morning's message is this, that Christians have an entirely different perspective on money than the world does. So let me ask you, are your spending habits any different from your unbelieving neighbors? Are the things you're investing in any different than your unbelieving family members who have their own investments? Is there any distinction between the way you think about money and the way they do? See, we're following Jesus when we think about money. Uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, Paul says this about Jesus. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. Jesus is the example of extravagant generosity, isn't He? I and mean, let's reflect on the Gospel for a moment. The, the, the idea that God, holy and set apart and transcendent and just, looks down on a world of sinful and rebellious individuals, a mass of humanity that does not love God and does not want to honor God, but God in His riches sends His own Son who was rich Himself enjoying the divine pleasures of heaven. He came to earth. He set those aside. He humbled Himself. What did He become? He became like a slave. He became a servant. And He humbled Himself to the point of death. Death on a cross. He washed feet. He touched lepers. He was with the lowest of the low. He became the poorest of the poor. In fact, the Bible says foxes have holes, (laughs) birds have nests, but I don't have any place to lay my head. You couldn't imagine what it would be like to enjoy the riches of heaven. 
And many of us couldn't even imagine to experience the lowness of poverty. And Jesus experienced both. And He came into our world to empty Himself of all of heaven's riches because of His great love sent by a loving Father. And the Son being sent of the Father divested Himself of His riches for the time being so that He could die in the place of undeserving rebels who, if they trust in Him and in His resurrection, will be forgiven all their sins. And listen, we then in Him will be made rich. This is the Gospel. We are impoverished apart from Christ if this world is all we've got. Even if we've got all the money of Bill Gates, we are impoverished if this world is all we have. But in Christ, we are made rich. And as we repent and trust in the Savior, we are forgiven all our sins, adopted into this family. And the Bible says we receive an inheritance, uh, an imperishable, everlasting inheritance that awaits us in glory. Christians are generous not because... They're trying to earn a standing with God and they think that by giving, God will love them a bit more. Christians are generous because they are convinced beyond the shadow of a doubt they're already rich in what matters. In this monopoly money world, we can get rid of this stuff as others have need. We can give as others have need. And as we do so, you know what Jesus says, we're storing up treasure bags in heaven. This world is short. This world is a vapor. It's as if we were all on death row and someone stepped into our jail cell, paid the penalty for us, gave us, left us with loads of money and then said, everything you spend on yourself will disappear. Poof. But everything you spend on others for the sake of God and for the sake of eternity, for the sake of love, will be given back to you tenfold in eternity. Now go live. It's obvious why Christians, once we get what the Bible teaches, it's obvious why Christians are generous people. It's obvious. We're already rich in what really matters. And the stuff we've been given on this earth will just poof, disappear if we try to spend it on ourselves. We can't take it with us. And we come to this part in 1 Timothy, and Timothy has to understand how to lead the church. And it's actually interesting that the last two chapters of this letter have a lot to do with money and how the church ought to think about money. You get this section about widows, and there's uh, the idea that certain widows ought to be cared for financially. Verse 3 of chapter 5, the honoring of certain widows. Honor has financial connotations. It means a kind of care that would also include sometimes helping them with their expenses. In chapter 5, verse 17, our verse this morning, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. So they are to be given financial compensation, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. You go to chapter 6, verse 5. He's talking about false teachers, and he has to address their false ideas of money because some of these people who were apparently influential in the church thought, verse 5, that godliness was a means of gain. 
You pursue godliness, you pursue holiness only because you might be able to make a living of it. You might be able to get some return, some financial money uh, as a result of being godly. That's what some people were thinking. And so he has to correct them. That's that same section in chapter 6, verse 10, that you've heard this phrase before. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. He has to keep teaching on money. Hey, use your money this way. Use your money this way. Don't think this about money. Don't love money. Don't be obsessed with money. In chapter 6, verse 17, he has some directions for those who have a lot of money. He calls them the rich. Verse 17 is for the rich in this present age. Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. If you're rich, don't set your hope on riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works. What do you do with the rich in your church? Charge them to tell them, be rich in your good works. To be generous, it says. To be ready to share. Why? Look at verse 19. Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. He's got to address some of the financial issues. He's got to address them because finances reveal the heart, not only of an individual, but of the church. He's got to give directions for how these people in Ephesus, this church that Timothy is leading, he has to give them directions for how to spend their money as a congregation. Now go to my text here. In chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, we're going to read it real quickly. And what we're actually going to do is use this text to zoom out and see some bigger picture about the church and finances. Our verses say, starting in verse 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. He quotes from the Old Testament law about the ox. It's not to be muzzled when it's getting all the grain ready for harvest. Let the ox eat as it works. You'll get a little more return out of it that way rather than muzzling it up. And then he quotes from Jesus. In Luke, Jesus sent out his disciples to go and, and preach the message of the kingdom coming. And he told them, That when they go to a house that receives them, they can stay there, they can eat there. And then he said, the laborer deserves his wages. And so Paul gives two Old Testament and New Testament, one from the old, one from the new, two quotes to to support this statement that certain elders, those who rule well and those who labor in preaching and teaching, should receive payment for their work. The word he uses is double honor. Now, I need to back up and just show the big picture of this. And, and I titled the message this morning, morning, Money and Mission, How Generosity Fuels the Great Commission. Uh, I sometimes worry that the, the idea of talking about money in church it can be totally misunderstood. As if the only thing we're concerned about is bigger buildings, more stuff, more nice chairs, uh, better uh, decorations, 
Uh, just stuff like that. It's just the more money we get, we're just going to pay the pastors more. We're just going to get better stuff around here. We're going to increase the technology as if it's all just about making this place a little more comfortable, a little nicer. And certainly it's not wrong to use money in those ways. But I want to show you in the New Testament that money and mission are tied together. That the Great Commission has always been dependent on the generosity of regular Christians. In fact, I want to point out our first point, if we're going to take notes, if you're following along and you're a note taker, the first point is this. We're going to go back and we're going to look at the book of Acts to notice this. The first point is this. The advance of the gospel is made possible by generous Christians. The advance of the gospel is made possible by generous Christians. Christians. You can think about the Middle East for, with me for a second where mosques dot the landscape. I was recently listening to a pastor who was visiting Dubai, and there are mosques all over the place there. It's primarily a Muslim uh, city. And the pastor visiting this Christian church in the middle of that place asked, how are these imams? These Muslim leaders in the church, their mosques, their quote-unquote church, how do they support it? How, how do they get paid? And the missionary that lived out there replied and said, it's the state. The state pays them. The state pays them to live, and the state gives them their sermon for Friday as well. In other words, the state gets its message out through the mosques in the city. It's not the generosity of the people showing up to the mosque that allows these mosques to continue. It's the state. Uh, in, in contrast to that, how do churches advance? How do churches exist? We see in our text that the way they are meant to exist in propagate the teaching of the gospel is that the church is to bind itself together in generosity, support the leadership of those who are ruling well and those who are laboring to preach and teach the Word of God. In other words, the church is to be uh, supported and advanced. And the Gospel is to be spread when Christians generously free people up so that their entire nine to five is to be devoted to the Word of God and to prayer. You could even contrast how Christians act with some cults. I've known that some cults, in order to pay their leaders, require mandatory giving. It is non-optional. It is a matter of excommunication. If you are not willing to give an exact amount to the church uh, on a regular basis, that you will be put out of the church. It's, it's compulsory. It's not generous. This is how the cult message goes on. The cults are required. It is part of buying into their whole system is you have to literally pay into it. Friends, the, the Christian church is altogether different. The, the church is meant to move forward being driven by generosity so that even the very fuel that drives us is a reflection of who God is. The fuel that drives mission forward is not state-funded money. It's not compulsory, mandatory money. 
It's willing gifts from a believing body that says the gospel is valuable and the truth is valuable and we want to support the people who are doing the leadership in these things. Who are preaching and who are leading in the church. It's the free generosity of church members. Uh, You can look at Acts chapter 2. From the very beginning, the church has always been advancing because of the generosity of believers. The, the, the early church is formed. Peter preaches the gospel in Acts chapter 2. Uh, thousands of people repent and they're added to the church. And verse 42 of Acts 2, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. And then you get down to verse 45. Look at this. What a model for us even today. It says they were selling their possessions and belongings and were distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. This is not some form of ancient communism. This is, this is real living generosity. What's happening is this church is so enamored by the generosity of God. They're so enamored by the reality of heaven promised to them. Eternal life is theirs. And they look around at these people that God has given them, this church family that's been brought in, and they go, oh, there's need. There's there's need in this family. There's need with this person. There's need with these individuals. And they start selling their stuff to get the needs of these people met. It wasn't compulsory. It was generosity. They weren't forced to do it. They did it gladly. They loved to give. And so what's happening, this early church is being built up because these apostles are teaching and because all the people are responding with full generosity. You can turn your, to the next chapter, or the, in a couple chapters, in chapter 4. We see another little picture of this overflowing generosity at the very beginning of the church. You wonder how did the gospel move so fast through Acts? I think in part, it's because the church was that generous. Verse 32 of chapter 4. Now the full member of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said any, that any of the things that belonged to them was his own. <laughs> it's like, it's, this, is, this is my stuff, but it belongs to me, but I'm not going to claim it as if it's mine. I'm going to understand that God has given me everything that I own. Everything that belongs to me is really God's first And so they're saying, hey, if anyone needs it, take it. Verse 33, what's the result? And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was was upon them all. Verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. I mean, I just imagine if you're the, the watching world and you see this church, you want to be a part of that group. You want to dive in and be beloved in that way and cared for. And in that body, the gospel is just being pounded forward in these lives. Not a needy person. Look at this. For as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. There it is again. As any had need. Again, the apostles weren't sitting here requiring anyone to do this. Hey, you have land? I heard you have a car. I heard you have ownership of uh, this investment. Well, if you're going to be a part of our church, you've got to sell that thing, you've got to get all the money out, and you've got to give it to the church. It's part of what it means to be a part of our church. That sounds more like a cult. <laughs> That's not what was happening. This was voluntary. This is what they wanted to do with their stuff. 
And so they were so thrilled. They're like, life is short. And I have these things that God has given me. And we're on a mission. And so I'm going to liquidate my assets so I can give to the church so we can be on the mission. That's what they wanted to do. They were imitating the very generosity of Jesus Christ, who, though rich, became poor. Why? So that others would become rich in the deepest, most spiritual sense of the word. And then you get to Acts chapter 6. If you want to just follow the the advance of the early church, what happens in Acts chapter 6? Widows are being neglected. Uh, They need to raise up some people to care for the widows in verse Verses 1 to 6, they go through this. Why do they do this? It is what the apostles say in verse 2. They got these other men to help serve tables. And they said that the apostles, it says, it is not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. These men needed to be set aside so they continue preaching the Word. So they can continue praying for the people. How were they able to do that? I think the only explanation is because of the generosity we saw in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. These men were able to fully and completely devote themselves to the ministry of the church because the church had basically said, whatever you need, we're going to provide it for you so you don't have to get caught up into some other things so you can feed us. Feed us the Word. Keep bringing us the Gospel. It's obviously what God is using to build the church right now. Keep it coming. Keep keep preaching, and we'll give you what you need. We'll support you. This was the early church's mindset. Uh, You need to understand this, that your generosity is not an isolated thing between you and God alone. It's not even something that just has implications for this church. Generosity, first of all, is a reflection of the very character of God and second of all, is the very way God has chosen to free up gospel ministers so the gospel keeps being preached. This was the mindset of the early church. Pay certain gifted men who are leading the church and who are laboring and preaching and teaching so they can set aside the lion's share of their week to the study of the Word, to the prayer for the church, so they can teach, so they can shepherd, so that they can make disciples. Now, some might respond, okay, what you're saying is that Paul said to Timothy that there should be pastors that are full-time pastors, like that's their job. Um, I do think that's what Paul is saying to Timothy. And then you might respond, if you've read the New Testament, you might say, hang on a second, I see a contradiction here. Didn't Paul do bivocational ministry? Wasn't Paul a tent maker? And on the side... He was working to support himself. He labored night and day, it says in Thessalonians, so that he could uh, not ask the church for any money. Isn't that the better model? Shouldn't pastors, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't churches be better served if they didn't have to pay a pastor full time? If the guy could be part time and he makes his money on the side so the church isn't burdened to have to pay for the pastor? Well, I'm going to show you that that was Paul's unique strategy, but it wasn't his standing teaching in the churches. Very clearly here in Timothy and many other places, the Bible teaches that it is the normal way. Now, I understand bivocational things happen, and there's sometimes times for that, as we'll see in Paul. But Paul's normal teaching to churches is that those who labor by the gospel should be provided for by the gospel. Those who are laboring for the work of the gospel are provided for in the labor of the gospel. 
Let me show you this in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. You can turn back there. This is where he's just so crystal clear about this issue. Paul is talking about his rights as an apostle. He's talking about his rights as an apostle. Verse 3, um, let me just, just also say, the reason why he has to talk about his rights is because he's being accused. The Corinthian church, as we know, was kind of an immature church, had a lot of issues, and they were accusing him. He was facing a bunch of accusations, and so Paul regularly had to defend his own apostleship. Look at verse 3. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Of course he does. Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Of course he does. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have the right to refrain from working for a living, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? You guys know any soldiers that paid to go be on the front lines? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of the fruit? That doesn't happen. Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say any of these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, this is also what Paul said in the text we read in 1 Timothy, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God's concerned? He's basically saying this Old Testament law was teaching that even the oxen, when they were treading out grain for those farmers, the oxen was not to be muzzled. It was to be eating as it's working. And so that its very work became the source of its own food. And if you muzzle that poor ox, you're not going to get as much production out of it and the ox is not going to work for you anymore. It's going to be a stubborn ox. <laughs> and what's happening here, he's saying, hey, even the Old Testament, he's not primarily concerned about oxen. He's concerned about something deeper. Look at verse 10. Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. Look at this. Look at verse 13 just to make it even more clear. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? Say, so what is he talking about? In the Old Testament, the priests that were there at the altar, when there were offerings given, the priests were allowed to eat the sacrifice. When it was a meat sacrifice, they would eat it. It was part of the way they were paid. In other words, their work resulted in their own sustenance. They were eating some of the offerings that were coming in. It was how the Lord provided for the priests in the Old Covenant. Verse 14, it couldn't be more clear. In the same way, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now Paul will go on to say, I didn't ask you for any money. I didn't make use of this right, but his point that I'm making clear, he had the right. He could have easily said to any of the churches, I'm, I'm giving you the gospel. You, the, the way this works, the way it worked in the Old Testament, the way it works today, is that churches pay the people that are preaching them the gospel. But he didn't do it. And the reason I think he didn't do it is because there were so many accusations coming, him from, coming at him from the church in Corinth uh, the, the church in Corinth was a newer kind of church, a more immature church, that he felt that if he were to ask for money, it would be a huge stumbling block in front of the gospel. He wouldn't be able to um, minister as effectively. It would be like this. If we send out a missionary, uh, let's say into the deep, dark tribes of Africa where there is no gospel, and that missionary gets in there, and these people are not, kind of not sure who this guy is, who this missionary family is, but some people start to gather, and you get a growing crowd, and, and maybe there are some that are starting to profess, maybe they believe in Christ. You know what? It probably wouldn't be a good move for that 
pastor out there, that missionary out there, to start asking those people for money. Because they might begin to believe, hey, you're just doing this to get our money? Because they're so immature and they're so new to all this stuff. Well, that's what Paul was doing. He was ministering in Corinth, I believe, uh, free of charge so that he wouldn't put any stumbling block in them. And so they would never question his motives. They would never think, oh, you're just in it for the money. He did it free of charge. But he did get support from other churches. We know in, in Philippians that the church in Philippi was supporting him. They were in partnership with him. He asked other churches. He was supported so that he could devote himself full-time to the ministry of the gospel. And so there are some contexts when the preaching pastor or missionary or minister should not be paid by the people he's serving, but should be supported, like often missionaries are, by many churches that get behind this missionary and fund their ministry. But the normal standing teaching of Paul is that churches should take it upon themselves the responsibility to provide for the elders who lead well and those who labor in preaching and teaching. Galatians 6, chapter 6 says, Let the one who is taught the Word share in all good things with the one who teaches. And that word share often is used to describe a prosperous believer sharing with a poorer believer. It's also used to describe when the Philippian church shared with Paul financial resources so that he could keep ministering. The Great Commission often runs at the speed of generosity as people are paid to be freed up so they're not to be working a normal 9-to-5 job so the whole 9-to-5 of their week is devoted to Bible study, to prayer, to shepherding, to discipling the church before him. And when Paul is writing to Timothy, he wants to make sure Timothy gets this. The church is not revitalized if you don't have anybody willing to pay the pastor who's preaching. And that leads us to our second point, which is very much uh, the, the same as our first point, is the building up of our healthy congregations is made possible by generous Christians. So it's not only the advance of the gospel as missionaries are supported, like the Acts 2, Acts 4, Acts 6 early church movement of the gospel, uh, not only missionaries like Paul that are being supported, where generosity fuels the mission and fuels people to go bring the gospel to new places, but it's the building up of a a healthy congregation is made made, um, possible by generous Christians. Uh, It is what we often say, the first and most important mark of a church to have the Word of God preached regularly. Uh, On our Sunday evenings, we've been going through the nine marks of a healthy church. And the number one mark, in fact, the mark that begins everything and then everything flows from this first mark is expositional or expository preaching. It is absolutely crucial for a church to be taught the Word of God. To have someone who will handle it, who will study it, who will stand up and be able to communicate it to the congregation. It is absolutely essential. And it is a healthy congregation that says, we want this, we need this, 
and we want to be generous to support this. Now, let me just be really honest for a second right now. It can feel really awkward to stand up here and preach like this because you can easily be assuming my motives is, hey, he just wants a raise. He just wants a salary increase. And this isn't my motive at all. I'm taken care of. But let me just say that I'm taken care of because there's churches in Orange and Simi that have been extraordinarily generous to us and that our, my salary is paid by the generosity of churches that are a part of this church revitalization project. But it's important for us to hear that one of the landmarks of church health is when we as a church family are able to take upon the responsibility to pay for those in leadership. Those who are leading the way, that's what it says, the who's are ruling well, and those who are laboring to preach and teach, it should be our responsibility and our desire to say, we love the word preached. We value the word preached. And therefore, we want to invest in these particular men so that the word is continually brought before us again and again, week in, week out, so we are hearing the word of God. Paul knew that the best way to ensure the health of a congregation was to free up qualified and gifted men to study, to pray, to preach, and to teach God's Word on a regular basis. And I think he knew that if he counseled every pastor to do what he did, which was often to make tents on the side and to support his ministry in other ways and to ask for other churches to get involved, I think if he were to ask everyone, I think that would not have been wise. Of course, he was the apostle, but we do know that he did not do that. He never called for other pastors and preachers and churches to do that, to support bivocational ministry in that way. It happens sometimes, but the normal way Paul displays here in the text is it is normal for healthy churches to support those who are ruling well and those who are laboring in preaching and teaching. Uh, I think if you force preachers to work nine to five, making widgets at their factory, and they get home and, and five to eight is time with family, they eat the dinner with the family, they put the kids to bed, they help disciple their kids, they should do that, they're responsible to do that, and then 8.30 till midnight, they're in the books trying to prepare a sermon, uh, that's called burning the candle at both ends. Uh, one pastor using hyperbole said, you want to see Christianity disappear? in one place in 60 years, make all the pastors bivocational. It's a bit of a hyperbole, but his point is this. If they try to run at that rate, it's going to be very difficult. It's going to be very difficult to actually have pastors who do care for their families and care for their churches and work well at their job. And so Paul's wisdom, which is the Spirit's wisdom, verse 17, let the elders who rule well be considered of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. I'm sure you've probably been disgusted by some of the extravagant lives of quote-unquote pastors who have private jets and who buy hundreds of dollars worth of clothing and shoes and just the extravagant, oh, everything's high brand, everything's as expensive as you can get. That's not what we're talking about. That's not what it means to support a pastor. It simply means this. Provide for them what they need to live. Provide for them what they need to live. And so what Paul has given Timothy is another way to work for the health of the church. Like, hey, Timothy, 
as you're bringing this church along and you're teaching them and you're shepherding them and you're leading the way in this church revitalization, you need to make sure that this church knows that they are to be supporting those who are laboring in the preaching and teaching of the Word and the leadership of the church. I think this has so much implication for us in the future. We, we talk often, and we, in fact, we talked about this morning as, as Mark Severance led our membership class. We talked about our desire to, in the future, multiply healthy churches. That could be in sending people to revitalize a church, or that could be sending people to plant another church. We want to be all about this, but, but sometimes... Churches can get so excited about this that they act so flippantly that they send people out before there's any way for them to be financially supported. And that poor church planner gets out there and he's working hard and he's trying to put together good sermons. He's trying to shepherd the church, but he's also got to work on the side and he's also got to raise his kids and he's trying to do it all and he thinks he can do it and maybe for a year he does and that second year he struggles and that third year he burns out. Friends, that happens so frequently. And if we want to be a church that's on mission and interested in church planting and church revitalization, well, one of the things that means is we want to be a generous church to support those things. And I take Grace Seamy and Grace Orange to be tremendous examples of exactly that, to free up money so that they could support this revitalization. We want to be doing that. This has implications for us in the future. So how do we get this way? How do we become generous? How do we get to the point where we are with our money saying, God, it's yours. I want to be used by you in any and every way possible. And if that means my wallet, then I'm giving whatever you ask me to give. How how do we get there? I want to give us one big reason and then a smaller reason with a bunch of subpoints. The big reason is this. We become generous by reflecting on the generosity of God. Have you reflected on that recently? Have you reflected on your spiritual poverty before Christ? Have you reflected on the reality of your absolute need that you and I were destined to destruction? And we were so poor, we had nothing of ourselves to give to God that would cause Him to change His mind about us. We couldn't earn anything. We couldn't give Him something. We had nothing. And in Christ, He came for us to live a perfect life, to die on the cross for our sins, to be raised again. And now, we who trust Him, being drawn to Him, being believing in Him, we who trust Him are rich. You have everything you need. You are abundantly provided for. And God will never stop providing you for you because He's a good Father and He watches you and He knows your every need. He knows the hair on your head. He knows your name. He knows the needs that you have in your life and the needs you have in your heart. And you in Christ are rich. Do you believe that? In Christ... You have been blessed with every spiritual blessing and in eternity, all the prosperity that God has will be poured out on you and you have no lack and you will feel no lack for all eternity. Reflect on that. And that will make you generous. But I also think that generosity needs to be taught. 
In fact, you read through a lot of the letters that Paul wrote, many places he's teaching people how to be generous. He's teaching people how to think through these things. He's teaching people how to do giving. He's teaching people how to think about their own generosity. And so I want to give us six things here, six ways we ought to give, six principles that get behind our giving. We're going to rapid fire these guys. Here's how we are taught to give in the New Testament. Number one, give obediently. 1 Corinthians 16. If you want to see it all in one place, you can look at 1 Corinthians chapter 16, where Paul literally takes a few verses to instruct the Corinthian church how they are to be generous. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1, he says, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so also are you to do. There's directions for here. This is a matter of obedience. We don't demand any compulsory giving. We don't go around knocking on people's doors to see how much they're giving. But it is a matter of obedience to the Lord to say, hey, I have something I want to give. So we give obediently. We love our Lord and we want to follow Him. We give obediently. Number two, give systematically. Verse two, listen to this. 1 Corinthians 16, verse two, he actually instructs the church On the first day of the week, each of you is to put out something aside and store it up. Huh. He's really practical here. Give systematically, Paul is teaching them. Hey, first day of the week, get something aside, store it up. In other words, he wants these Corinthian believers to get into the habit of regular giving. Bring something. Don't, don't let it be irregular. Don't let it be off and on as, as much as you feel like it. Sometimes we, we, we save the leftovers for God. It's like I want to live my life and spend my money on my things. And then if I have a little bit left over, I'll bring that to God. The opposite is described here. The systematic giving is this is what I want to give to the Lord this week. I want to give this to the Lord and I'm going to shape my life around what I have in the margin. Thirdly, give proportionately. The same verse in 1 Corinthians 16, after saying, hey, set something aside at the beginning of every week, he says, give as he may prosper. Or as the NIV translates it, give in keeping with your income. Isn't that interesting? Again, so practical here. Give in proportion to what you make. That means it should be normal for those who have lots of money to be giving more and those who have less money to be giving less. We do not believe in the rigid 10% tithe that some churches teach. We believe that it is more a proportion thing and that's up between you and the Lord. Uh, I've known of some people who do the, uh, the reverse tithe. They give 90% and they keep 10 because they're extraordinarily wealthy and they can live that way and that's the desire of their hearts. They give proportionately. 1 Timothy urges rich people to be rich in good works, be rich in generosity, be ready to share. And so Paul is teaching them, I want you to give obediently, I want you to give systematically, I want you to give proportionately. Fourth, give quietly. There's some people in the church that only want to give when there's a big public need. (laughs) They want to get their name slapped on the thing that they bought for the church. Jesus said, when you give, don't let your right hand know what your left hand's doing. When you give, don't make a big deal out of it. Do it in secret. Make it between you and God alone. Give quietly. 
I mean, some people are almost literally trying to buy human approval by announcing how much they give or giving in such a way that it's noticeable. And Paul would, or Jesus, would give a different method. Give so that no one knows what you're giving. Give as quietly as you possibly can so that it's between you and God. Number five, give sacrificially. You guys remember in Luke 12? Man, Jesus tells this parable about a man who gets this bumper crop and he gets all these new crops and the first thing he does is he goes, oh, I'm going to build bigger barns to store all my stuff. And you know what God says to him that night? You fool. I don't think God hates barns. I think God doesn't like when we get some sort of income some sort of financial blessing, and the first impulse that we get is, ooh, what can I get for myself? Ooh, what can I do with this? How can I make my life a little cozier? How can I give, how can I just make my life more about me? I think the first impulse for a blessing that comes from God in the form of a gift of finances or possessions is, oh, thank you, Lord, you gave this to me. It comes from you. How can I use this for your glory and for the service of others? There's a sacrifice that goes into following Christ, and we only slightly show the sacrifice of Christ when we do this, but we do. We get to show a little bit of what Christ did in sacrificing himself for us. Remember the beginning, repentance. Repentance always is accompanied with a reorientation of how you think about your money. Are you like the rich young ruler, willing to go anywhere with Jesus, so long as he doesn't ask you to change the way you spend your money? Lastly, give cheerfully. 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 7, the point is this, Paul says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You are rich, Christian, not because you have money in your bank. That money is useless when you die. It goes nowhere. It doesn't come with you. We ought to be the kind of people that when we give, we say, there's more where that came from. Not because we're rich, but because we know that God who owns everything has all things at His disposal. And if we have any need, He will make sure we're cared for, won't He? He's that good to us. And so we give. We give cheerfully. We don't give because we have to. We give because we get to. We get to be a part of this thing that God is doing in the world. Uh, We'll end with this. I want us to be like a young man that was named William Borden. As a young man, he inherited tremendous wealth, millions and millions of dollars. But his heart was with Christ. His heart was with with the the global fame of Jesus. He wanted to make sure that people heard the gospel. He was so rich, and it was confusing to people why he drove an old beat-up car. But he did because he was unwilling to spend it on himself. He literally gave away hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars to the cause of global missions. He died young, 
having served a portion of his life in Africa, but not only that, having enabled lots of missionaries and mission work to be done in Africa where he was paying for them to go. The coolest thing about this guy's story was at the end when they finally buried him, after his life of generosity, one of the things that was inscribed on his his epitaph was this, apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. My prayer is that that's true of us. That the way we give, the way we live, is so countercultural that even the clothes we wear and the cars we drive and the furniture we buy and the services we subscribe to are not pointing to the depth of our wallet, but to the depth of our love for Jesus and our trust in Him and what He has provided for us. And so we ask, what does the use of your money say about the worth of your Savior? Does the use of your money Proclaim, Jesus is my treasure. Or does the way you spend your money say, this person has set their hopes in this world? Let's be the people who say, what we have been given, we've been given by God for Christ and His glory. And let's be generous so that there is no explanation for our lives apart from our faith in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we are rich. We are rich in every spiritual blessing. We are rich in your promises. We have an inheritance that waits for us. We will have every need met. We will be ultimately provided for. We will never lack. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be a people who reflect your generosity by being generous ourselves. And that we would be a healthy church that is able to support the preaching and teaching of your word from generation to generation. That a hundred years from now, if you do not return, there is still the Bible being opened and the gospel being preached from this pulpit. So Lord, enable us to support your mission in the world with our own generosity. In Jesus' name, amen.